Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. It said, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf ear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, John the Baptist is having doubts about whether Jesus is the Christ or not. Now, before we get into the why he's having doubts, uh, we need to keep in mind that if anybody knew who Jesus was, John did. I mean, and I'm going to show you that from Scripture. If there was anybody at that time on the earth that was a human who knew who Jesus was, it was John. Go to John chapter 1, and I'll show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 6, the scripture says this. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So here he was, when he was sent from who? God, God to bear witness about who? Jesus. Jesus, okay? Go to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 36. In verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent... Uh, from the Pharisees and they asked him then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet John answered them I baptize with water but among you stands one you do not know even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie all right and then he goes the scripture says these things took place in Bethany across from the across the Jordan where John was baptizing now the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Keep reading. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So again, we see very clearly, John knew who he was. Not only was he sent by God to testify to who Jesus was, he even said, The one that sent me to baptize told me, The one you see the Spirit descend on, that's the one. Baptize him. Go to John chapter 3. Look at verses 22 through 30. In John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. 
for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from, a, from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, I want you to understand that here John again was questioned, are, are you the Christ? He said, no, but there's one coming after me you don't know, and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And here again, John testifies that it was Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Did John know who Jesus was? Yes. Did but he know John him? now is doubting. Did he know in the womb who Jesus was when he uh, the, the Bible even kind of hints that in the womb he That's might have even known who Jesus was because the baby he left in his mother's womb when Mary's voice was heard. That's right. Yet at the same time, John is now going through a little bit of a downtime, if you will. He's in prison. And he actually sends a couple of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Now, I don't know about you. That makes me feel a lot better because I even have doubts every now and then. You ever had times when the, the enemy will kind of whisper in your ear, what if it isn't true? What if it's not real? If John the Baptist can doubt, it's okay that you and I doubt. But we kind of doubt in a way that makes us go closer to him. If we're going to question, make it go have you go closer instead of run away. Thomas, as you know, was called Doubting Thomas. I think he's been given a bad rap because he wanted to believe. There are some people that doubt because they don't want to believe. Oh, I doubt it. And they don't want to believe. His doubt was because he wanted to believe. He loved the Lord. So what I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you a little bit about the why John doubted. And I think it will hopefully be very, very helpful for us. Now, there's a small portion to why, and I don't think we're going to spend too much time on it. But it's because of the struggle of this life. He's in prison at this time. And as you know, sometimes our faith weakens. When we go through times of trial, go, through, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Let me show you what I mean. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of uh, Jews who had become Christians who now were suffering trials because of their faith. And they were considering going back to Judaism. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, the Hebrew writer says to these Jewish Christians, he said, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know full well that Jesus told the parable of the soils and how the seed fell on the rocky soil. When trouble came, it went away because it had no root. 
There are those who, when they go through times of struggle, their faith weakens. I don't believe that that is the real issue here. Because you remember our study last week, we looked at the fact that John had denied self throughout his life. John had lived a life of struggle. He had lived a life of solitude and, and hard, hardship, if you will. So I don't believe John's doubting because he's going through a tough time. I'm sure it plays into it because when we go through struggles, it works on us. As some of you know, I've been dealing with my back issue now for over a week again. And I'm sitting tonight as I teach because it helps to stand and then it helps to sit and then it helps to do other things and try to find a place that's comfortable. And it works on you after a while. It works on your head. But I think the scripture actually in our passage in Matthew tells us why John doubted. Go back to Matthew chapter 11. The answer's right there. Look at verse 2. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, Jesus, John has heard about the deeds, the things that he's doing. He's heard about what Jesus is out there doing. And this is not matching up with what John had been sent to preach and teach about the Messiah. As you know, he was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight paths. And John had been sent by God to go preach a message of repentance. John had been sent to preach about what the Christ was going to come and do. And Jesus wasn't looking anything like or acting anything like what the spirit in John had said he would do. John had been sent to preach a message of repentance because the Messiah was going to come and clean house. Look at it. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Go back to Matthew 3 and look at verses 1 through 12. Listen to the message that under the spirit's power, John preached about the coming Messiah. In Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 12, it says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was his message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when, they saw, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist's message was, the guy coming after me is going to clean house. You better, you better repent. You better get your life in the right place and turn from your sin to be ready to respond appropriately to this guy that's coming. Because his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's a, that's a judgment tool. That's a threshing tool. And he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. By the way, was he preaching the right message? Was that just what the Spirit told him to preach? But now he's in prison and he hears about the deeds of the Christ. Jesus wasn't acting the way John thought he would. He was being nice. He was quiet. 
He was helping people. He was healing people. He was forgiving <coughs> their sins. I mean, he was even being known as a friend of sinners, of all things. And so John is now sitting there in prison going, this isn't, he's not looking like what I thought he would look like. He's not doing things the way I thought he would do them. By the way, has anybody else ever had that thought? Is any of you else? I hope you've all had because you're human. We've all had a time or two we thought, I didn't think, I didn't think he would do it that way. I don't understand what he's doing. Here's where John got, he got messed up in his thinking and he got confused. He was right in what he preached. And God used him mightily. But he didn't have the whole story. You see, Jesus had to remind him that there were other prophecies about the Messiah too. Go back to verses 4 and 5 in Matthew chapter 11. Look at how Jesus words it. In verses 4 and 5, he says to him, he, he sent word back. He answered them, John's disciples. He said, you go and tell John what you hear and see. You see, John had heard and, and, and what he had heard about the deeds of Christ. He said, you go back and tell him what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And then he said this. He said, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus actually, in responding to John, quotes Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that showed that he also had another purpose as well. Is he going to come and judge? Yes. Do we need to respond in repentance to be able to respond to him appropriately? Yes. But he first had to come and be the suffering servant to live the sinless life, to die for the sins of the world, and then he could come and rule and reign. And John didn't have the whole story in his heart. He only had the part that he thought God was going to do. And by the way, if that doesn't describe most Christians today, where we got our theology, where we know how we think God ought to be, and we've got him in a box, and if he moves in any other way, we get messed up, because that's not how I saw God would do it. And I've got my verses that prove that he will do it this way. Years ago, I read a book, and this theologian was writing about how this one man every morning would get up at 6, and uh, he would leave the house. And then at 5, he'd come back from work and he'd go in. And on certain days, when it was Saturday, he wouldn't come out until about 8. And he said there was this ant, a group of ants that lived outside this man's house. And this one ant thought he had the guy in the house all figured out. And he bragged to the other ants, you watch. 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, he's going to come out that door. And 5 o'clock, he's going to go back in. And he told all the other ants, because I know, I've studied him. I know what this guy's going to do. And, of course, in this story, the man was sick that day and didn't go to work, and it messed the ant's theology all up. So I love how Jesus words his answers to John. He says, you go back and tell John what you hear and see. And then he quotes, like I said, about a very, from a very well-known prophecy about the coming Messiah from the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 61. Go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isn't that what Jesus said? You go back and tell him that the good news is being preached to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. 
Now, we know that this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah because Luke chapter 4 tells us that when Jesus goes into his hometown of Nazareth, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he intentionally unrolls it to this spot. He reads it, then he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. He claimed to be the promised one, the Messiah that was prophesied about. You see, there were other prophecies about the coming Messiah that showed he had another purpose other than just coming in judgment to set up the kingdom. He was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, hopefully that's, you understand, that's the time period of the, of the Lord's favor. He was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And by the way, if you study Jesus' life, you'll notice that at the beginning of his ministries, it was offers of salvation, offers of salvation, offers of salvation. But as it came time to the end, his messages to the Pharisees became very harsh, did they not? He started talking about how they're going to kill him and then they're going to be handed the vineyard over to others. And they got really upset because they knew he was talking about them. Did you know that there are other prophecies that talked about how he was going to be quiet and meek? Amen. Go to Isaiah 42. Look at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. By the way, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does, does that ring a bell with anybody? Yeah. Does anybody remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? When the Father boomed his voice and said what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, until the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord God, the cr who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison. Those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So here again, we see that he was going to be quiet. He was going to be meek. He wasn't going to raise his voice in the streets. He wasn't going to be an aggressive person. And he was going to open the eyes of who? Of the blind. You go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. He's heard about what I've done. You're not only hearing, you're seeing it. You go back and tell John. The eyes of the blind are being opened, quoting from here. The good news is being preached to the poor, quoting from Isaiah. Go to another one. Go with me to um, Matthew. I'm oh, sorry. No, we'll go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Look at verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and the root, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before her shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Again, a wonderful prophecy about the coming Messiah. But again, not one that the Jews wanted to look at too much because they were more focused on the passages that talked about the coming and ruling and reigning and how Israel's going to be the center and the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to ascend the mount and they're going to go to the temple and they're going to acknowledge God and acknowledge the Jews. And there were prophecies that they really liked. And they spent all their time on those. By the way, once again, that sounds like a lot of Christians. There's a lot of verses we really like, and we spend a lot of time on those. But as you've hopefully been hearing me say to you for the years, you want to correct theology, you've got to build it from the Holy Scripture, not a verse here and a verse there. John was writing what he preached, but at the same time, he wasn't preaching the whole story. He was preaching what he was told to preach. And what Jesus was doing at this time wasn't matching up with what he thought the Messiah was going to look like. And it caused him to doubt. Let me show you one more passage in the Old Testament. Go to Psalm 22. David's writing. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to read verse 1. Then we're going to jump to verses 6 through 8 and then 14 through 18. 1, 6 through 8 and then 14 through 18. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jump down to verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, hopefully you understand. That's word for word what the people were saying as they walked by the cross. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Now, you've got to understand something about prophecy before I get to verses 14 through 18. Prophecy is not written so we go, oh, that's going to happen in this. It's actually so that if you put it in your heart and you're alive at the days that it's fulfilled, the Spirit will say, that's what I was talking about. 
And so that's what you need to understand is you need to have the prophecies in your heart because as you know the whole of Scripture, you have it in. The Spirit of God can, can bring it to your remembrance. It can help you to see this is what I was talking about when. I'll show you that in just a second. Keep reading in Psalm 22. Look at verses 14 through 18. Starting in verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now we're on this side of the cross, so we see clearly who this is talking about. But you understand, that's why you need to study the book of Revelation, folks. That's why you need to know what it says. That's why when you study Revelation, you need to compare it with the Old Testament. And you'll find that most of the book of Revelation was already all written in the Old Testament. And Revelation just compiles it. Too many Christians have been taught that the book of Revelation is just a book that was added on at the end. It's all symbolic and it says we win and they lose. And, and both people stay away from it because they're told it's confusing. But the Bible actually says in Revelation chapter 1, Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and take to heart what is written. It's the only book that says you have a blessing if you read this one. And that's the one you're going to skip? Folks, get it in your heart, though, because when you have it in your heart, as we continue to live in the days that are leading right up into its fulfillment, you'll be able to see what's going on as the pieces all come together. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. We're in Matthew 11 in our study. Look at chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. I'm going to give you a little quiz. Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. It says, Jesus aware of this, they wanted to make him king and others wanted to destroy him. Jesus aware of this withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant with whom, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here, when Jesus went away, when the people tried to kill him, and he didn't stand up against them and try to fight them, and he just quietly went away, they said this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah. Does anybody know where in Isaiah it was written? Very good. Some of you are taking notes. Good for you. It's 42, where we just read 42 verses 1 through 9. But again... As God was revealing this to Matthew, Matthew was able to say when he did this, it didn't make any sense to us at the time. Because you know the disciples themselves were even wondering, why aren't you going and using your power we've seen you have? And why aren't you making a name for yourself? And wait a minute, you're going to let them kill you? We're not going to let that happen. When at the time it didn't make sense, later on, the Spirit helped them understand this was written about in the Old Testament. Folks, let me just tell you, the thing that is keeping me going in these days of chaos on the globe is the fact that I know most of what the Old Testament says, and I'm seeing prophecy in the Old Testament, passages that most Christians have never read in Zechariah and Zephaniah and Hosea and Daniel, and as those of you who went to our study of Ezekiel, we're seeing that all come to fruition in our midst. And that's keeping me going because as bad as it looks, as much as people are committing suicide all over the globe because of the despair and the depression that's happening on the earth, I know everything's right on schedule. And I'm to be watching 
because he's going to come get us very soon. But it's because of the prophecies all coming together. Only by getting in the Word. You have to be in the Word. You have to be in the Word. Now, so when Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and tell John what they see, and then he quotes Isaiah 61 to them, he's in 42, he's in essence saying everything is right on schedule. You go back and tell John that everything's right on schedule. I am fulfilling the prophecies. I am the one who is to come. When we build our theology only on portions of the scripture instead of the whole of scripture, it will mess us up. And I'm just going to say that to you folks. Some of you have had God work you over because you had those verses memorized. And then he didn't do it that way. But doesn't it say? Um, you built your theology on a few verses, not on the whole of Scripture. I can name many Christians over the years who have taken passages of Scripture and have been convinced that if they have enough faith, they can pray a sickness away, and this cancer will go, and the situation will be relieved because he's promised by our by his stripes we're healed, and he and they built their theology on verses that sure say a certain thing. But the whole of Scripture doesn't say that everyone will be healed, does it? We looked at that last week. Some were sawn in two. Some were escaped the edge of the sword. Others were killed by the sword. And all of these were commended for their faith. You need to have your theology built on the whole of Scripture, not on some of your favorite verses. Let me show you something in Matthew chapter 22 that Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other. They were the political parties, if you will, in Jerusalem at that time, even though they were religious leaders. And they had different theology. In Matthew 22, look at verses 23 through 33. It says, the same day Sadducees came to him. By the way, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And by the way, preachers have joked for years. If you don't know which ones don't believe in a resurrection, which ones don't believe in, and, and which do believe in a resurrection... The Sadducees are the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's what made them sad, you see. All right? So, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third and down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And so they take the law of Leverett marriage from Deuteronomy 25, and they don't believe there's a resurrection. So they decide to take the scripture and say, if there's a resurrection, then whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Because they've all been married to her. If there's a resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Look at what Jesus says. By the way, it's one of my favorite verses in scripture. Listen to what it says. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Boy, I could take a whole sermon just on that verse. On how much we are messed up and we're wrong. Because we don't know the scriptures. We only know a little bit of it. And we also don't really believe in the power of God. We may know the scriptures, but we don't believe God's going to do it. And then he goes on and says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He knew what the real reason why they were asking the question. And he says, hey, 
um, you built your theology on just passages of scripture, but don't you remember what the rest of scripture says? Use those verses too, and you'll understand you're in the wrong. Go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then they went back to their homes. Did you catch it? Even as yet, they didn't understand the scripture. By the way, were they, how were they feeling at this time when they found the tomb empty? Pretty messed up. Scared. Confused. Disillusioned. What's going on? This isn't happening the way we thought it was going to happen. This isn't going like we thought it was going to go. We thought he was going to be. This is what the two men on the road to Emmaus said. We thought he was the Holy One who was going to redeem Israel. We really thought he was the one. But it didn't go like we thought. Folks, let me ask you a question. I want to show a hand tonight. How many of you in your hands are willing to testify tonight publicly that God has done everything in your life just like you thought he would? Good. Because I can't raise my hand either. This is why we must study God's word and meditate on it daily. We need to humble ourselves and admit that we don't have full understanding but that God's word will provide for us all we need to know and to have peace when we don't know. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 105. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 105. David says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. By the way, I love this verse because I was having a, a text conversation. Let's just call it a conversation between me and a man who's in his 80s. And he was arguing with me about a theological topic. And then he threw out this. He said, I'm older than you. You should respect your elders. And I wrote back to him. And all I wrote was Psalm 119, verse 99. Sorry, verse 100. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. <laughs> In other words, I may be younger than you, but I, I read more scriptures. Let's stick with the scripture, not use who, who's older. Amen. Keep reading. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. 
Your lamp is a lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Are you going through something right now that you don't understand? Are you wrestling with God about something that he's doing and not doing it the way you'd like him to do it? And you don't understand, you're confused, you're bewildered. If you remember, when Jesus met up with the two men on the road to Emmaus, what did he do the whole walk? Took them back to what? The scriptures. He just reminded them of the scriptures. That's what the angels would say. Remember what he said to you when they spoke to the women and to the disciples. Folks. In those times that we go through these trials, and it's a part of our shaping and a part of our molding. In those times where we want it to be over and it's not over, God says, go to the Word. Go to the Word. And let me teach you. Let me instruct you. And you're going to see things in the Word you've never seen before. And it's going to give you peace. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. You can write it down, double check it later on. The, sorry, the, things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. In other words, there's going to be things that God knows that we don't know. And they're not going to be revealed. And we have to be okay with that as well. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 says this. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Proverbs 25 verse 2 said it's to God's glory to hide some things. But it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. It doesn't mean we don't keep searching. You know John 17, 17, Jesus prayed. Saint Father, sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart. Make them holy. Disciple them, mold them, shape them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul's dealing with the, so the Ephesian elders in Miletus, and he's already warned them that all these false prophets are going to rise up from within their flock and try to lead many astray. And all he says to them is this, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among the saints. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and following, how we're to study ourselves to prove how we're, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, the scripture says. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible is full of passages that say us everything we need for life and godliness we receive from Jesus, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, but we also have it in the word. It's there. And if we meditate on his word, we will get understanding. I don't, we could take the rest of the night with you all sharing testimonies of times in which you were praying about a struggle. And God, through his word, as you were spending time in the word, even just reading somewhere that you just were reading to go through the word. And something that had to deal with what you were dealing with just came off the page. You'll get understanding if you allow his word to speak to you. I love verse 6. Go back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. Vance Havner calls this the forgotten beatitude. We've already studied the beatitudes in Matthew 5. Vance Havner calls this the forgotten beatitude. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6 of Matthew 11. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are those who are not thrown off by how Jesus runs his world. I'm going to do this real quickly in the time we have left. We've got 15 minutes left. I'm going to show you that Jesus offended everybody. Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 33. I'm going to show you, I'll give you, if you're taking notes, I'll give you a little heading here. He offended his own nation. Romans chapter 9, verse 33 says this. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion... 
a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He offended his own nation. You know, John chapter 1 says this in verses 10 through 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. He offended his own people. His own nation, the Jews, were offended by him. Why? Because he wasn't the type of Messiah they wanted him to be. He offended the Pharisees. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 12. Matthew 15, verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? By the way, what was Jesus' reaction when he found out that he offended the Pharisees? He says, Who cares? <laughs> Let them go. They're blind leaders of the blind. By the way, is that how we're to treat all Pharisees? Be careful. See, when you get your theology all figured out, you're going to find God do things in ways you don't understand. Because here in this passage, he clearly says, they're blind leaders of the blind. Every plant that has not been planted by my father is going to be rooted up. I don't care that I offended them. Yet he had the most loving conversation with a Pharisee. I'm going to do this, John. I hope it doesn't make you too uncomfortable. But when Jesus met with John, uh, sorry, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he quoted that passage that we all love to quote, John 3, 16. We always picture Jesus on a hillside with his arms out saying, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Do you realize that when Jesus said that, it was at night, one-on-one, -on -one, in the dark, with a Pharisee? And they probably were sitting this close to be able to see each other. Now let this sink in, my brother. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words... God himself sat this close to John, to, I keep wanting to say John because that's your name, but <laughs> Nicodemus, and he said, for God so loved you, he sent me. That was said one-on-one -on -one in the dark, probably needed knee with a Pharisee. So how do you treat the Pharisees? Well, I always treat the Pharisees with the, the contempt and disdain because Jesus said, who cares? Oh, but he didn't always say who cares. You've got to know the scriptures. Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, and he gave her theology. Mary said the exact same words, and he wept with her. You ain't going to ever figure him out. You're never going to figure him out. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Who's ever been his counselor? from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever and then it goes right into the very rest of the passage that if we lay our bodies on the altar if we lay our flesh on the altar and we daily renew our minds and we're not conformed to the pattern of this world but we're transformed we'll know what his will is his good pleasing and perfect will he'll you'll never figure god out those of you that think you've got god figured out you've just shown your ignorance but he will show you what he wants you to do his word will be a light to your path. He'll lead you and guide you on a daily basis. But keep yourselves from thinking that you've got it figured out. Because blessed is he who's not offended by me, Jesus said. Blessed is he who doesn't do things the way you want him to. You know, he offended his hometown. Go to Matthew 13. You're in Matthew 15. Back up to Matthew 13. Look at verses 53 through 58. In Matthew 13, verse 53, 
says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, sorry, verse 53, I, I start in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor, and except in his hometown, in his own household. And he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, he even offended the false disciples. Go to John chapter 6. There were those who claimed to be disciples and followed him, but they stopped. When things got hard, they were offended. John chapter 6, look at verses 60 through 66. When many of his disciples had heard it, he had just said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He offended some of the false disciples. As you know, Jesus then turned to the twelve apostles and he asked them, what about you? No, in essence, you guys, are you offended and do you want to leave too? You're free to go. This is a good question for all of us tonight. Because I'm pretty sure that Jesus hasn't done things in your life the way you'd want him to. Are you offended? Are you going to go away? I know of many people that when a certain individual died, they got mad at God. And they stopped walking with God. Jesus says to John's disciples, you go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. And he quoted from other prophecies that were about the Messiah as well. You go back and tell John everything's right on schedule. The blind are seeing like the prophecy said the Messiah would do that. And the good news is being preached to the poor like the prophecy said he would do that. And everything's right on schedule. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. Amen. Folks, i got to be honest with you. Every day my flesh gets up with its own agenda and its own desire. Every morning I wake up and as I lay in the bed or it's been on the couch for almost a week because of my back because the couch is a little stiffer and it helps a little. I wake up every morning with, am I going to be able to move today? Is there going to be any pain? And as I go to the bathroom to do my bathroom routine, I'm, I'm testing it, you know, hey. And there's hope. It's feeling pretty good. I didn't wake up last night with pain. And then usually within the first so many minutes, you realize, oh, the disc is still squishing and pushing on that nerve. And I'm bothered. Got to pop the pain pills again. And I have prayed. Oh, I've talked to the Lord a lot about this. He keeps on saying, everything's right on schedule. You can keep asking, and I am, and I do. I'm doing my exercises. My therapist is sitting right there, so I just want you to hear that. I'm doing my exercises. 
But at the same time, God's got a purpose and a plan. If you remember, I've already been through this so many months ago. And then it went away. It was wonderful. Now it's back. And I wish I could tell you why. I don't know why. But he's keeping me humble before him. He knew I was going to preach a message on blessed is he who's not offended by how I run my world. Vance Havner, the preacher I quoted earlier, his wife of so many years passed away at 2.30 in the morning on a Sunday. And he preached at 11. And all the people in the church were shocked when he came to preach because they knew that his wife had passed away that morning. And they were like, we didn't expect to see you preaching today. And he said to them, and he preached from this passage in Matthew chapter 11. Are you the one or should we look for another? And this is what Vance Adler said. He said, if my faith doesn't work at a time like this, it's no good at all. If my faith has to go on hiatus because my wife died this morning, then it's not real faith. And he preached one of the most powerful messages he ever preached from Matthew chapter 11, where John was sitting in prison and saying, are you the one or should we look for another? And he stood there and he said, I'm going nowhere. I'm not going to leave. Yeah, my flesh is offended. Your flesh is offended many times. But by his grace, we stick. Why? Because we don't live by sight. We live by what? By faith and what he said and who he is. As I shared with you last week, I'm going to be preaching this Sunday at First Baptist Melbourne. 35 chapters in the book of Job in 35 minutes. It's going to be an interesting message. Come to hear it if you dare. They got three services, so I got to be done in time because they're going to kick the next one off at the next time. But I'm going to be talking to Christians about how Christians, unfortunately, have a tendency when other Christians are going through trials to want to preach to them and tell them what God is doing and what they should be doing. And I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you now. Don't do it. Because even though Job's friends said what was right in the sense that they said things about God that were biblically true, it didn't apply in Job's situation. They didn't know what God was doing in Job's life. But even though Job was wrestling with and he didn't know what God was doing in his life, his friends would come and say, we know why this is happening. And folks, let me just say this to you. Christians need to stop trying to play God in other people's lives. When you see brothers and sisters go through a struggle, don't tell them why this happened. Amen. Don't tell them if you would just do this, you can get out of it. But you be a good Christian brother or sister and you come alongside of them and you point them back to him and you remind them of who he is and what he said. And that's all we do. What time is the service? Well, there's three services. It's going to be 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30. So. But let me just tell you. It wouldn't have done John any good to have someone come and preach to him and say, well, this is what God's doing. Because even to this day, we don't fully understand why God let John die the way he did. But we have to trust him. We have to trust him. Actually, the Bible says the trials and times when Jesus allows stuff we don't like or acts on things slower than we would like. They're being used of God to prove our faith. Isn't that interesting? We've already talked about how it's going to show who's phony and who's going to go away because they're offended and God didn't do it the way I want. And I went, the Bible says that person never had a relationship, never had salvation, or else they would have stayed. But at the same time, for those of us who are his, the trials are proving our faith genuine. Let me show you two verses as we close tonight. Go to James, well not two verses, two passages. James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 
James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he goes on and says, if you lack wisdom, go ahead and ask God. And he'll give it to you generously, but you've got to believe that he will. So when we go through trials, what is God doing? He's testing our faith. Why? So that when our faith has been tested and we stay, it produces a perfection and a completeness. So that we won't be lacking in anything. By the way, you'll miss out on a whole lot God wants to do and show you if you run from the trial. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. I hope you do. I do. That means I'm saved and he's holding on to my salvation in heaven. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Praise God that we're held on to by him. We've got this awesome salvation that's being kept in heaven for, by God for us, and we're shielded by faith until the coming resurrection. And in that we rejoice, but also for a season, if necessary, we have to go through trials. And these trials have come to do what, according to this passage? To prove your faith genuine. Folks, if when God doesn't do things the way you think he thought he should in your life, you go away, it proves that your faith wasn't real. You had no real salvation. But if in the midst of it all, you stick, it proves that your salvation is real. Because who's holding on to you? Christ. And do you have to understand everything? No. Can you understand more? Yes. But it's going to be a personal journey as the Lord takes you through why he's doing what he's doing in your life. And in the meantime, keep from trying to tell everybody else what God's doing in their life. Because if you don't know what he's doing in your life, how in the world can you know what he's doing in somebody else's? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.